Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, I'm going to go through and respond kind of off the cuff. I don't have anything scripted, but uh, I was uh, given a list of objections uh, that are given by atheists and how I would respond to them. Uh, within a conversation uh, on, on, you know, after I've given an argument for the existence of God or have talked about the Bible or something along those lines, and we get this objection, how would I respond? So uh, enjoy the episode. Atheist objections can sometimes throw Christians out of balance when they're trying to talk about their religious belief or their faiths or give arguments for the existence of God or what have you. I've been going through a series dealing with some of these atheist objections and positions, and now I want to go through a somewhat shotgun approach to some of the more common ones. These aren't going to be fully developed responses to all of them. I actually don't even have a script or any notes this time. I'm just going to be going through as if someone was talking to me right in front of me and what I would say in response to some of these and give some insights and in how to handle them and why some of these are just really, really bad objections or rejoinders to Christian arguments. So let's jump right in and go through some of these. Now, this happens all the time. Sometimes when uh, you're giving an argument for God, say you are a presuppositionalist and you go through the tag or you're doing an abductive argument for the existence of God, or you give the kalam if you're you know, a classicalist or you're a precept doing evidences. Uh, yes, that happens. Uh, <clears throat> what will happen is when the, when the conclusion is, therefore God exists, for example, uh, this happens especially, especially when you're doing abductive arguments, um, is the atheist will then say, yeah, but you haven't proven that God exists to even be a possible explanation. That's the rejoinder. Now, I mean, it's really weird when that happens, but it happens all the time. Basically, what they're saying is, I don't care what your argument is that you've just presented. You can't have as the conclusion God exists until you've proven that God exists in order to be a possible explanation for it, right? Uh, this, this happens, um, uh, they, they can give analogies and they say, okay, but, but we can say, uh, you know, when, when, we're, when you know, John Loftus, uh, or sorry, um, John Lennox is giving arguments about, you know, uh, different types of, <clears throat> different types of causations or reason for something. He says, oh, well, you know, I can talk about uh, the physical reasons for for why I'm having tea because water boils at a certain point. I can give all the physical properties, or I can say because my you know my wife wanted to to you know give me a warm drink and so she made me tea. And the atheists say yes, but you already know your wife exists, 
as an explanation, right? You can't you can't plug God as an, as an explanation uh, until you already know that God exists. Okay, this is a really really bad, <laughs> a really bad response for a couple of reasons. Oftentimes, this comes at the end of an argument that does prove that God exists, uh, right? So, for example, if I went through some type of transcendental argument, right? Uh, if God did not exist, then the transcendental facts of reality would not exist. The transcendental facts of reality do exist. Therefore, God exists. Now, I'm not ar here arguing that that argument is true, right? But if it's true, if I can show that the premises are more plausible than the negations, then it just follows deductively that God exists, right? Uh, or if I give an abductive argument, right? It's more plausible if God exists that there are transcendental facts of reality. There are transcendental facts of reality. Therefore, it's more plausible that God exists as the explanation for them, right? <clears throat> I don't need to know prior to the argument that God exists in order for that argument to work. Right, all my presuppositionalist friends just died a little bit inside, but but don't worry, you you can still affirm that it's okay. But what happens if we think of something like um, an argument for for why they believed in the electron? Right, we had all of this evidence that something was happening, and there had to be this electrical charge balance. And there was, you know, we had, I don't remember. I'm going back to my uh, to my high school chemistry class, but we had all this evidence that there was something that was there, but we don't know what it is. And so we posited this hypothetical entity called an electron to explain the data. We didn't need to first prove that the electron existed before we posited it as the best explanation for what we're observing in the actual world. So it's just <clears throat> it's just a bad explanation. And if you think about it, that means that no explanation, no evidence could ever qualify as valid for the atheist, right? Because whatever evidence that you have, and I've done a whole episode on the unfalsifiability of naturalism, whatever evidence you have, give me evidence, give me evidence. This is the, the Matt Dillahunty problem, right? I, I you know, in, in my debate with Matt Dillahunty, I showed him I could I could have I could have all of the stars rearranging in the entire cosmos to say Matt Yahweh exists and I made this to tell you that right and he still would be able to say well maybe it's a super intelligent race of aliens that are playing pranks uh, maybe um, you know my mind is just a pattern forming machine and I'm just imputing you know language onto that pattern kind of like how we see the Big Dipper maybe uh, it just is quantum weirdness. Um, maybe it's it's just you know what happens after a given certain amount of time of the universe that it rearranges that way and there's you know there's there <clears throat> in the multiverse there's going to be some universe that that comes up, right you could give all these naturalist explanations so they could say well I mean we have all these possible naturalistic explanations for it so until you've proven that God exists right we we, we observe all these natural things so we can posit natural things until you observe until you prove that God exists you can't posit God as an explanation for the rearranging of the stars right that means there there there's there nothing could ever qualify for them as the exist as evidence for the existence of god because you would have to demonstrate god before any of that evidence would qualify for it but you could never give evidence for it because you would first have to it's this infinite regress of explanation right it's just this 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 unreasonable standard of explanation and evidence that happens on naturalism that makes that kind of atheistic naturalism, that type of scientism, uh, unfalsifiable.
right? So that that just, but you haven't proven God is even possible. It's just a really bad explanation. It's just a really bad rejoinder uh, to arguments and evidence given for God. What about, yeah, but uh, who created your God then? There's been a bunch of uh, different um, YouTube and articles and all these kinds of things respond to this. I'm just going to treat it really, really quickly. I don't want this episode to go too crazy long, and I have about seven or eight of these to go through. Who created God is a child's question for a reason. Uh, <laughs> God just is, is defined as an uncreated being. Right, as a necessarily existing eternal being without a creation point. Right? So asking who created God is like asking, well, what was the creation of that uncreated thing? It's a nonsense question. It means nothing. It's like asking, what, what was the wedding date of that bachelor? It just doesn't mean anything. It's, it's a silly question. You can ask how many swivel swarps are on a nibble dupe. It just, it, it's, it's a meaningless nonsense question. Now, that doesn't mean that therefore God exists, although I think that the necessary existence of God is, is proven by other arguments, like something like Plantinga's uh, modal ontological argument or, or a, you know, a Leibnizian contingency argument or something along those lines, or a presuppositional uh, impossibility of the contrary. Now, but the point is, is that you don't have to believe that God exists but you should at least engage with the concept of God that we actually believe in. So asking who created God is thinking of God like a big Zeus, right? Which is not how a classical theist or a Christian thinks about God. Okay, the next one, the flying spaghetti monster, right? This is, this is the Tom, I'm going to call it the Tom jump fallacy, right? The flying spaghetti monster or, or naturalistic pantheism or, you know, I, if I can, if I can, I think Braxton Hunter from Trinity Radio calls this the pinhole, right? If I can give this tiny little possible other explanation that I've somehow defeated your argument. Okay, this fails for a couple of reasons. First of all, if I have more reason to believe uh, that God exists than Flying Spaghetti Monster, right? Because Flying Spaghetti Monster, and we'll get to this in a second, doesn't conceptually carry all of the explanatory weight that the existence of God does in the realm of discourse that we're asking about. When we're asking about creation, transcendental facts of reality, specified complexity, fine-tuning, objective morality, all of these types of things. Right, you have you have God as a single unified concept that isn't ad hoc. It's the concept of God that we've always believed in. We're not changing it uh, to to overcome these objections. It just is the concept of God. That single explanation has huge scope. It's a simple explanation. It's one entity that explains almost every single or every single foundational question that we have in philosophy. It grounds all of it. Right, we have this single explanation. A flying spaghetti monster doesn't, <clears throat> and, and, and what you have, right, so you could run a conceptual analysis for God, for example, and some atheists try to do this. You know, uh, Michael Martin tries to do this, and he tries to show that there's an internal inconsistency within the omni-attributes of God. Now, I think those are all defeated, but he tries to show that the concept of God itself is incoherent. Well, we can do that with a flying spaghetti monster. Well, <clears throat> is it possible? For a flying spaghetti monster, right? Well, spaghetti just isn't a fly. I mean, we know what spaghetti is. It's not. It's not a. It's not a personal thing. But they're going to say, "Oh, well, it's magic spaghetti." Okay. Well, there's an ad hoc change. Spaghetti doesn't fly. Okay, but it's this magic spaghetti that does fly. 
Okay, there's another ad hoc change. Okay, but spaghetti is a finite, you know, flying is is a space-time thing. Spaghetti is a finite thing. Monster is, an, is really kind of a scary attribute we give to, to some type of being, right? These are all finite concepts. It can't explain... Um, you know, a finite thing within the, 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 the cosmos can't explain the cosmos itself, right? Because it's contained within the cosmos. Well, it's this transcendental flying spaghetti. Okay, so then flying doesn't mean flying. Spaghetti doesn't mean spaghetti. Monster doesn't mean monster. And you're making all these ad hoc changes. Well, how can it create? Well, the flying spaghetti monster just is this omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, right? To ground objective morality. It has a satiety. It has a mutability. It's unchanging, right? That way it's this rival concept to God. Well, no. All you've done is say, okay, to compete with God as an explanation, I've taken this term flying spaghetti monster and I've ad hoc tweaked the concept to be identical with all of the same attributes that you call God, right? It just becomes conceptually indistinguishable from God. So what the, what the outcome actually is when you when you push the conceptual change and they make the, the conceptual concepts <clears throat> and you do a conceptual analysis and they make all these ad hoc changes, you push it into this corner where they've now changed a flying spaghetti monster into God himself. And so now what they're saying is, oh, well, you know, the, God can't be the best explanation because the identical concept of God is a better explanation or is an equal explanation. Okay, I mean, a rose by any other name, all you've done is show, well, the only way I can compete with the God concept is, is by positing an identical God concept. Right? So the flying spaghetti monster argument just doesn't work for a multiple, uh, multiple layers of reasons. Okay, what about the next one? If you grew up in Iran, you'd be a Muslim. Okay, first, not guaranteed. There are Christians in Iran also. Uh, there, you know, there are Hindus in Iran also. There are atheists in Iran, right? So, so that that's not a guarantee. But they're making a they're making a plausibility. It, it, it's it it is plausibly the case that if you grew up in Iran, the the probability is that you'd be a Muslim. Fine. What does that have to do with showing the truth or falsity of either Islam or Christianity or anything like that? I could I could tell the atheists the same thing. Guess what? If you grew up in Iran, you'd probably be a Muslim. Therefore, atheism is false, right? Nothing really interesting follows from that, right? No, nothing, nothing really, it, it's, this, this is why it's a genetic fallacy. A genetic fallacy is trying to falsify a position by how someone came to hold the position. Right, so imagine that that there was a, that 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 I, in Iran. This isn't true of Islam, just but I'm just saying. Imagine it's the case that that you know that that Muslims only believed that the Earth orbited the Sun because uh, you know because they believed that there was a magic comic book that told them that. Right? Would that make their belief false? No. It would mean they're, they're, they have irrational reasons for believing it, right? But it doesn't make their beliefs false. So at the most, what they can say is, well, if the Christian has no other reason to believe Christianity is true, except for <clears throat> kind of geographical accident is the term that they would use in being raised in a Christian home, then they might not have a good reason. They, 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 you know, they might not have a good reason for why they're a Christian, Right. But that doesn't mean Christianity is false. That doesn't that do, nothing, nothing really interesting follows from that. And if you're and if you're talking to an apologist, 
right? They're giving all kinds of reasons for why uh, it's it's reasonable to believe. So this just isn't a good rejoinder, especially when you're dealing and talking with someone like myself who actually grew up in a secular home, in a non-religious home, uh, to the point where when I was 20 years old and I became a Christian, I had the realization for the first time, oh, that's what the Christmas carols are about. I didn't even know what the Christmas carols are about. I, I was so secularized, I didn't know what the you know what the Christmas carols were all about. I mean, I, I vaguely knew just kind of general things, but I didn't know the details of them. I, I literally, I think I had gone to church twice in my entire life before that, right? I, I, I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a very, very secular, let's call it deep, deep, deep navy blue uh, area of the country. Right, so it's just not the case for a lot of us that we grew up uh, in Christian homes, indoctrinated to believe that type of thing. Um, so not only is this is this type of rejoinder a genetic fallacy, not only does it just not entail anything interesting, it's also just flat out insignificant or or just not accurate to a lot of our experience. Okay. What about? Well, we can't believe the Bible because it's made by a bunch of Bronze Age ignorant goat herders. First of all, most of the Bible isn't a product of the Bronze Age. Uh, it's funny when someone says Bronze Age and ignorant when they're talking about something like the Gospels, uh, because that just is an ignorant statement about basic history. Uh, but <clears throat> and goat herders, because um, you know none of the none of the New Testament had anything to do with any 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 goat herders, uh, and and honestly, most of uh, the Old Testament had nothing to do with goat herders either. But anyways, uh, but that's actually irrelevant. Uh, because when you're dealing with the authorship uh, of the old of the Old Testament, now we might not know for certainty uh, who the authors are in some cases, but we know that you know David authored uh, quite a bit of the Psalms. He was a king. Uh, we know um, that we're dealing uh, with a lot of times highly educated priests. I mean, they're writing some of whether or not you believe it's true. I mean, the Bible is a, is a literary masterpiece, um, and and and. You don't get that from just pure ignorant people. So the, I, I understand that this is a dismissive remark in the sense that you don't believe that it's true or you believe that it's too superstitious or something along those lines. But we're not dealing with illiterate goat herders here at this point. I mean, we're dealing with people who uh, who authored uh, arguably the most influential masterpiece of literature that has informed and shaped nearly all of Western civilization and huge parts of Eastern and African and all kinds of different uh, civilization as well. Um, so when you say something like Bronze Age goat herder, you might as well be holding up a sign that says, I'm too biased to reasonably engage on this topic. Okay, th th that goes into the next one too, which is, well, we can't really trust Christian scholars on things because they're just too biased, or we can't we can't trust Christian sources, right? We can't we can't believe the Gospels because they were written by Christians. We can't believe Christian scholarship because it's written by Christians who want to defend these things. They're too biased. Okay, first of all, you need to in order to do something like that you need to show that bias actually influences the outcome in these particular cases. For example, that would be like me saying, we can't believe an evolutionist on evolution because they believe in it. So they're too biased because they believe that it's true. 
right? The evolutionists is coming along and say, yeah, but they're, I mean, they're giving evidence-based arguments. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're going through the data. They're giving well-reasoned. Can you refute anything that they're saying, right? You need to do the same thing. Just because someone is a Christian and believes that what they're saying is true. By the way, I don't know many scholars or anything who are writing and arguing for things that they don't believe are true. Um, so, it's just a silly ob ob objection that's kind of a hand-waving that doesn't really have anything, uh, that, that's not really a substantive response to anything that Christian scholarship or the Gospels are saying, right? So, so we can't go through and say, well, we can't trust the Gospels because it's written by Christians. Okay, that's like saying we can't trust the eyewitnesses of World War II because they believe that World War II existed. Um, that It's... It's just not how, that's just not how, uh, you know, historiography and trying to understand uh, events in the past and trusting in sources works. This flows into the last objection, uh, which again, I'm not going to go into all the details for. I'm just going to give a really quick response to. Uh, the typically the ones who are saying this type of thing about New Testament scholars and stuff find themselves in the Jesus mythicist camp, right? The camp that says there is no evidence that Jesus ever existed. It's one of the dumbest dumbs that I've ever dumbed in the history of dummery. Uh, I don't know how else to say it, right? There is zero, zero New Testament scholars who are actually, you know, legitimate scholars. They are, they're publishing in peer review. They're employed, they're gainfully employed at a higher, you know, a, an institute of higher learning, right? The two exceptions that people give are Richard Carrier, who actually isn't a New Testament scholar. He isn't gainfully employed at any institute. He doesn't publish in peer-reviewed literature on anything having to do uh, with the New Testament, uh, where he argues for his myth. Right? He he doesn't peer-review any of his mythicist nonsense. Right? He's been debunked so many times. And 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 uh, and and uh, Robert Price. Robert Price, they basically had to, the, the Center for Inquiry, they had to invent this think tank um, where they, 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 they publish their own stuff, right? It's not, it's not an institute of higher learning and they're not peer, it's not peer reviewed literature, right? It, it, it's just, it, it's just a mythicist think tank is all it is. They're, 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 you know, I'm sorry, but, but it is, you don't have any, there's, there's zero, zero New Testament scholars all right, who, who, are, who are doing that. There's literally more professional historians who are, who are uh, uh, Holocaust deniers than there are New Testament scholars who deny the historicity of Jesus. It's just nonsense. Uh, it's nonsense on stilts. So anyone who says that there's no evidence that Jesus ever existed, there's no reason to believe that, uh, is just, again, holding up a sign that says, I'm too biased and ignorant. I have no idea what I'm talking about, and I'm just parroting the memes that I've seen online. Typically, they want to mock religion or they want to deny religion, uh, and so they find this, this example. Uh, they, they find these arguments and these memes that, that, are, that are, have utility for that type of outcome, but it's just nonsense. It's why, it's why you'll see them gravitate to things like Mythicist Milwaukee and, and Zeitgeist, and they'll make all these silly, uh, nonsensical connections between Jesus and Osiris and Mithra. They'll be like, there's no evidence for Jesus, but look at all these solar messiah things. But when you actually, you know, <laughs> try to investigate the solar messiah thing, thing, things, you'll find, they'll be, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, Mithra had 12 disciples and he was a dying and rising and he had virgin birth and all that. And, None of that's true. I mean, it's just none of it's true. Um, and, and but they but they posit all this type of uh, of just absurd things. So 
so that was going through, uh, what was it, about seven uh, very common rejoinders that we get from kind of this uh, YouTube culture online uh, infidel type of atheism, this hyper-skeptical, scientistic type of atheism uh, that's coming out, uh, you know, against against religious belief. So, uh, hope that helped uh, you understand some of these objections and how we could possibly respond to them. So, again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free. If you're watching the YouTube channel, to put them in the comments there. Uh, if you're watching the podcast, uh, you can put the comments on uh, the Freedthinker uh, uh, blog, which is freedthinkerpodcast.blog blogspot.com or come on by the freed thinker group page on facebook thank you again for joining good night and god bless